Welcome to Bible study. It's very good to be with you again. And uh, I hope that today you'll really get something from this Bible study because it's a huge topic. And we hope that in a limited time we have, we'll be able to just uh, bring a little bit together these things. So we are talking about uh, Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. Supreme sacrifice, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, our High Priest, our Intercessor, and the Day of Atonement. It's good to have you with us today again, as I said. And I would like to ask the panel to introduce themselves today. Good morning, Nick. It's Stephen here. I'm really glad to be with you again. I always look forward to the time that we spend on the radio um, sharing something from the Bible. It's great fun. Hi, I'm Helen, and I'm very glad to be here. I missed last week, but I listened to it, and it was great. And thank you for the opportunity of sharing. Hi, listeners. My name is Ligia. And I would like to welcome you in this Bible study because it's very important. May God bless you and give you light to understand. Hello, listeners. This is Len. I'm the facilitator today. In other words, I point and that sort of thing for different ones to have their say. Uh, we have this lesson, uh, this uh, study, which Nick has mentioned, Christ in the Heavenly Sanctuary. I thought it could have another name. We could call it What Happened to Jesus After He Left Earth. And just because uh, I, I mentioned earlier that it, this is a huge topic, a huge subject, I'll encourage each one of you to, if you like to search more in depth these uh, topics, not to hesitate to visit any of our uh, Seventh-day Adventist churches around Australia. And whatever you are uh, listening, you may be even overseas and listen to these programs. Just uh, check any Seventh-day Adventist church because I believe they have a great understanding of the heavenly sanctuary. Okay, well, it's time for us to start. As I said in the introduction, that this particular study could be called What Happened to Jesus After He Left Earth. I want to read to you from Acts chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 9 through to 11. The disciples were with Jesus, and they were out in the country somewhere, and verse 9 says, this is Acts chapter 1, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they, that's the disciples, looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So that quite clearly tells us where Jesus went. He went to heaven. And that's what we want to know. What's he doing up in heaven? what function he has and does that function relate to what he did here on earth so let's go helen when jesus was here on this earth what was his function well there's a great text in luke 19:10 that says for the son of man is come to seek and to save that which was lost might remember that back in the garden of eden 
there was sin that came in. Adam and Eve fell, so to speak, and God wanted to plan. Well, he had a plan to bring humanity back to Himself and to His kingdom. And how was this going to happen? Well, there needed to be a bridge to link humanity to God again. And Jesus provided the only means by which humanity could go back to God after sin. And this is what He came for. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Yeah. Now Romans chapter eight and verse three add something to that. Stephen, would you like to tell us about that? Yeah, sure, I'd be happy to read that verse. Romans 8 verse 3 says, For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in the flesh. And actually verse 4 goes on and says, In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So in seeking and saving the lost, Jesus' function as well here on earth was to make people righteous, right, or without sin, or right in the eyes of God. Okay, they were very good descriptions of what Jesus did here on earth. Now there's another description that the Bible gives about Jesus' post or after his resurrection. And that's found in 1 Timothy 1.17. Helen, would you like to share that with us? I was thinking about this text and I thought as a sacrifice for my sins, he paid the penalty for me that I might praise him. And that's what this verse is about. It says, Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Right. So... There's a very distinct difference from the descriptions that were given about Jesus here on earth. One of the things he was called while he was here on earth was the Lamb, or the Lamb of God. When Jesus um, came down to the River Jordan, when John was baptizing, John saw Jesus coming and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So this was his function on earth, but his function changed after he left earth. Yes, Helen? Yeah, I noticed the word the Lamb of God, and when I looked into the Hebrew, that actually meant the divine Lamb. Yeah. Where John was saying, behold the Lamb of God, and that actually meant, behold the divine Lamb. speaks volumes. It's a metaphorical thing, isn't it? He um, did something which was very much likened to a lamb, particularly as it relates to the Old Testament ceremonial laws. Now, according to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 24 to 27, Helen, what is Jesus now in heaven? Basically, the first part tells us that this man, because he continues ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. So he is our high priest. And unchangeable, of course, meaning that it will not pass on to another, as in the Old Testament times. That Jesus is it. He is our high priest. Okay. Now, we hear the term high priest, but what does that actually mean? If we think back to the earthly sanctuary or the temple, because the first holy dwelling, if you like, was called the sanctuary, then later on there was the temple. What was the function of the high priest in the sanctuary and the temple? Stephen, would you care to answer that? 
I'm not sure I can give you a, a total and full and complete answer, but I can give you some, something of an answer. The high priest was the guy who was in charge of everything that happened in the temple. But the main thing that the high priest did in respect to temple worship practices was that he was the one who acted as the person who took the blood into the, the two apartments that were in the temple. So you had um, a courtyard, and inside the courtyard there was a little building, for want of a better description, that was divided into two. The first part of that building was called the Holy Place, and the second part of that building was called the Most Holy Place. And in the courtyard the sacrifices would take place. For example, a lamb, because we've talked about the lamb already, would come, it would be, it would be killed for people's, as, a, as an offering for people's sin. It seems quite um, brutal from where we're sitting these days, but mm. that's what they did. And I guess it showed how terrible sin really was. And then the blood of that lamb would be taken into the holy place. And then once a year, it would be taken into the most holy place. And the high priest was the one who would go once a year into the most holy place. He had a couple of roles um, throughout the course of the year. One was as an intercessor or as a mediator. And he interceded between the, the penitent sinner who came and had with the offering to be sacrificed and with God. He, he was involved when the repentant sinner actually killed the lamb. That's right. Yeah, yeah Nick? And just mentioning about sin, everything just spins around that thing, you know. Since the first human being decided to sin and God's plan was put it in place mm. to deal with that, and in that uh, case, in this context, the high priest was the one to mediate, if you like. Uh, and Stephen, you just mentioned how horrible, how horrible it was to see animals slaughtered, you know, the lamb to be killed and the blood to be spread there for our sins. But even if we can contemplate on this, how horrible is that our Lord Jesus Christ had to die oh, yeah, that's for, right. for us. Oh, and yeah. sometimes we are uh, dealing so easily with sin. Treating it lightly cost a lot. Yes, Helen. Yeah, I'd like to go back to that other text. I didn't finish reading that, but it just comes in with what um, Nick was saying, that Jesus himself is able to save um, to the uttermost all that come to him. He, he ever makes intercession with us. That's what he's doing right now. No high, For such a high priest, he became us. He became human. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens. Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, which Stephen's been talking about, first for his own sins and then for the people. For this he did once when he offered up himself. That, that encompasses his work, not only on the earth and, and uh, what happened on the earth in the Old Testament, but what Jesus is doing now. And yeah, sin is repugnant to God, and it should be to us as well, but we have a Saviour who can save to the uttermost. So as Lamb, he was the sacrifice for our sins. But now, as you read earlier, Helen, he is the high priest. Mm -hmm. And that means he is the intercessor. So he is both the sacrifice and the one who intercedes with that sacrifice. Yeah. He is the sacrifice and the intercessor. Ledger, I think you've got something you would like to share. Christ is able to save completely because of several qualifications that no other priest could ever have. He is God who has authority to forgive sins. He has a permanent priesthood. 
during the Christian's era, he is interceding all the time for his people with the same loving compassion as uh, when he healed the sick and comforted the lonely on earth. He is also human, but was born sinless and remained that way. And uh, at the sinless one, he died under the staggering weight of the sum of total of human sin. Only he, then, as the God-man, can intercede for sinners in heaven, in heaven's sanctuary. So what these texts show, too, is that Christ's sacrifice was once and for all. It needed to happen only one time and it was sufficient to bring salvation to every human being. Okay, well, we need to sort of um, backtrack perhaps a bit or emphasize something. We learn something about the heavenly sanctuary and the function of Jesus Christ now from looking back to the function of the priests and in the um, temple. And so I've got two questions here. We've covered it, but by answering it again, it'll stick in your minds. Helen, how often were the sin sacrifices made in the temple on earth? Scripture tells me that they were made daily. Daily? Mm -hmm. Every day? Every single day. You just day. think of it, the enormous task that was and the enormous amount of animals that were sacrificed for sins. So it was twice a day morning and night, so 365 days in the year, you're looking at, what, 700 and something animals just with those sacrifices plus the sin sacrifices. So it was an enormous amount. Well, how often did Jesus make sacrifice to cleanse us from unrighteousness? Stephen, would you like to answer that? Well, that's easy. Just one time only. Why not? Hundreds of times. Because the quality of his sacrifice was different to the quality of the Old Testament sacrifice. Yes. So Old T Testament sacrifices were done with the blood of bulls and goats and sheep. But Jesus' sacrifice was done with the blood, with his own blood. Yeah. yeah. And he was God made man. So the quality of his sacrifice was infinitesimally greater than the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Yes. I think that's a beautiful answer. Yes, Nick. Just to, to add to that uh, is not only that uh, how precious was Jesus' blood, but uh, all the other sacrifices before pointed to Jesus, the one who at once came and did it once for all. And that's why it's sufficient, Jesus' blood, because everything else what was done before was still referring to that's right. him. That's right. That's um, right. When we look at it from the New Testament perspective back to the Old Testament, we realize that those sacrifices were inadequate to deal with the problem of sin. Yeah. They were merely pointers, as Nick was saying, towards the sacrifice that would be adequate to deal with the problem of sin. Paul talks about, in Romans, about how God holds the sins of the past kind of like in one spot until Jesus comes to deal with those sins. I just can't think what the reference is for that, but yeah, I'm sure that you can find it if you look through your Bible right. in Romans. Okay, now, coupled with this, we're talking about the old system and we're talking about the new system. The Bible also talks about a covenant, a new covenant. Lydia, could you read Hebrews 8, 6 for us? 
please. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of, of which he is mediator is superior to the old one and it is founded on better promises. So it means Jesus' ministries is superior to other priests before him because in Hebrew 7 verse uh, 20 it says that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind and he is a priest forever so it means uh, because of this oath Jesus has become the uh, guarantee of a better covenant so it's a better covenant than before which um, I mean to me it means that salvation and forgiveness are no longer limited in time and space and uh, uh, are available to everyone and have a permanent effect okay and the other thing of course it's not necessary to sacrifice animals for the forgiveness of sin so this new covenant that the Bible talks about and it's listed in three places in Scripture Stephen could you just read to us what the Bible says about the new covenant and then perhaps explain a bit what it means yeah, yeah I can do my very best um Lydia was talking about how it's based on better promises and, and there's a bit of that in this in Hebrews chapter 8 verses 10 to 12 and it says this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time declares the Lord I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts I will be their God and they will be my people no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more so I, I when I look at that I go I know that's a quote from the Old Testament, um, which is significant in and of itself. But what I like about that is that um, it reminds me that the Old Testament covenant was based on sacrifices that had to be done every day. Yeah? Yes. And once a year there was a big, a big sacrifice program on the Day of Atonement, which we'll talk about a little bit later, which was very significant. But when we come to Jesus, there is one sacrifice. And so that means that the covenant that he mediates is a far stronger and more powerful covenant because mm. of the sacrifice that he made was bigger and more stronger and more powerful. Does that make some sense? Yes, it does. And then it says uh, there in verse, verse 12, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So when God does forgiveness because of what Jesus has done, there is no more remembrance of sin. It's gone. It's forgotten. And then it says, the next thing, which I find interesting, going back a verse, in verse 11, says that the covenant that, that Jesus is the mediator of, or the relationship that his sacrifice guarantees, is a relationship where it says, no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me. Because why? Because God now works directly in the hearts mm. of people. Yeah. And that means that this relationship, this covenant, this connection, is so much better and so much more powerful. And I guess... If an Old Testament patriarch or an Old Testament prophet was to think about this, they'd be incredibly excited once they came to understand all of this. Yeah. Yes, Nick. This may be just a little bit uh, off uh, subject, uh, but still I want to ask something. You mentioned, Len, that um, how many sacrifices were, uh, you know, done to, you know, to deal with sin. Even today in Christianity, there are people who think that they need to bring offerings to God, you know, they need to come to church with some offerings 
that their sin or even their relatives or uh, family can be forgiven. Mm. I know this may be a little bit out of subject, but what do you what do you will say in regard to this? Well, it seems to me very much that by bringing an offering, they have to earn their forgiveness rather than receive it as a free gift. Mm. At the end of the day, we are sinful, right? So anything that we produce and offer isn't going to be good enough. No. But Jesus is this, as we've already indicated, is that sinless lamb. He is the one who offered blood that we could never offer. Any offering that we give is only going to be a, a shadow of what he's already offered. So we don't need to give any offerings because his offering covers it all. Yeah, exactly. And praise the Lord for that. Mm. Otherwise, um, yeah, life would be much more difficult. All right, let's move on. As the mediator of the new covenant, what has Jesus obtained for us? Well, okay. I guess this comes on from what Nick was saying. Yes. Because, or the, the observation that he was making, he, as the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus has offered us eternal life. Yeah. And um, nobody else can offer that. Only he can give that to us if, yeah. we, if we want it. Yes. So it's more than just forgiveness. It's eternal life as well. I want to read to you from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. And it says, And for this reason, he, that's Jesus, is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the inher eternal inheritance. In other words, eternal life. Well, when you sin and you ask for forgiveness what do you see happening i've got i'd like to answer this too but i'd like you to answer it as well panel yes ledger what do you see happening when i sin the holy spirit comes into my heart and impresses me and it shows me that i've done something wrong that i broke the bridge between me and god and jesus so i come to god in repentance and I'm asking for forgiveness of my sin through the blood of Jesus who died for me. So Jesus is um, in front of the Father, you know, near him, and he's showing his hands and his feet, his scars that are still there, and he's saying, this person has to be forgiven through my blood that I died for this person. A sin brought a fearful separation between God and humanity. Jesus is there to build a bridge between me as a fallen human being and God, the Creator, mm. and Jesus, the Savior. Yeah, I like that. Helen, what did you want to say? i just like to say that Christ is on my side, at God's side, and when mm -hmm. I come to him for forgiveness, I come to Christ, and he then takes that to God. So... He is on my side, at God's side. Yeah. I think of it somewhat the same. I've done something wrong. I want to be made right. And so I pray and ask for forgiveness. That prayer goes up to heaven, into the throne room of heaven, the, the, the heavenly sanctuary, if you like. And there's God the Father, because Jesus said when we pray we should address God the Father, our Father, which art in heaven, so on. There's God the Father, and here arrives this prayer. Let's think of it in terms of uh, an email. <laughs> and God looks at this email and says, well, what has this person done that I should forgive him? 
And then Jesus intercedes and he holds up his nail-pierced hands and he said, you forgive him on the grounds of what I did for him. Mm. And then that way I obtained forgiveness and in that way Jesus is my intercessor. Yeah. I really like that picture. But there's also another picture that we can, another, another realization we need to have, and that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Yes. And so it's not that God has an attitude whereby he's waiting to pounce on us and, and send us to the hot place. It's really that God um, has a terrible dislike, if I can use that word, hatred even, of sin. Mm. And because of his hatred for sin, um, Jesus' presence is a continual reminder yeah. that one time Jesus stepped into our world, as it were, and died at one time for us. And so when I send my prayer to God, or my email, as you call it then, which I really like the look of, when I do that, um, God's attitude toward me is positive, and he realizes that, indeed, I, I, I really don't want to be a sinner. Yeah. And I really want him to save me from my sin yeah, and uh, to, to lead me and direct me in a life that he wants me to live. And you were talking before about people back in Old Testament times. How beautiful is this, that Jesus stands before the Father as our intercessor. Nick, you've been trying to get a word in edgeways. <laughs> because you asked the question, what do we think happen in, happens in heaven, you know, and we ask for forgiveness. I mean, just think of this. The hardest part was done to deal with sin. Jesus did it at the cross. And every time when we come before God to repent for our sins, mm. it's a big rejoice in heaven. Yeah. That's what happened in heaven. Every time when we come before the Lord to ask for forgiveness, the heaven says, oh, man, I can't even describe in words the joy. Yeah, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner, th sinner who repents than over 99 just persons, I think is the text. At one stage of my life, I was a professional photographer. I received a phone call to go along to one of the local Catholic, Roman Catholic churches and photograph the, what would we call them, initiates in having their first communion service. And I did that. And I found it interesting and when these young people, they were only about 11, 12-ish around there, all dressed up, beautiful dresses and the girls and the boys were dressed up beautifully too, the priest would place a wafer, something that looks like a potato chip, you know, one that comes in a packet, not one that is a deep-fried one. He placed one of these wafers on the outstretched tongue of the people receiving communion and he would say these words, the body of Christ. I heard it dozens and dozens of times. The body of Christ, he would say each time. Now, behind all that, there is a belief that our Roman Catholic friends called transubstantiation. Panel, would anybody like to comment on this? Well, they believe that um, that becomes the very body um, of Jesus. Yes. That's what transubstantiation means. In some mystical way, the wafer becomes the body of Christ. So what does that mean? What are the implications of that? To my way of thinking anyway, it sort of takes away a little bit from the idea that the Bible presents that when Jesus died, he died once and once for all. It's almost like there's a, and how I look at it anyway, there's a repeating of this, of this death experience in the process of taking Holy Communion. Yes. 
Yes, that's what I thought. And just uh, mentioning Holy Communion, or uh, as we practice, mm. uh, Jesus instructed actually his disciples, and he's uh, also telling us how to do it, and says, every time you do this, you remember. Mm. Do it in remembrance of me. It's, right. it's not like uh, putting Jesus himself again in the same situation. Mm. It, this is a... It's a thing to to just uh, remind us every time we do that, that what Jesus did for us, how he uh, sacrificed uh, his own blood for us, and how that is sufficient for us. We mm. don't need to think that we need to have Jesus right now to die for us again. No, it's like communion is a symbolic reminder. Yes. And we know that symbols are really important. We have lots of symbols in our world. Mm. And whenever we celebrate communion, for me, it's a really special time because I am through the bread and the and the wine or the grape juice or whatever, I'm being reminded in, in, in real symbolic terms, just like when I stand under the flag and I'm reminded that I belong to a particular country, you know? Yeah. Why, is why is it very important to take communion every, um, let's say... So often. So, yeah. Stephen, why is it important? Because somebody asked me the other day, well, why is it so important to have communion, to take communion? Well, for, for me personally, it's really important because um, there's something about symbols that, that really resonate with who we are as people, yeah? So when you stand up and you sing the Australian National Anthem as a, as a kid at school and there's a flag going, you know that you are Australian because you're, you're doing something physical, yeah? And when I take communion, I'm doing something physical and it reminds me that I am a child of God. Mm. I'm a sinner but I'm a saved sinner because Jesus has forgiven my sins. He came into the world and died for me once and once only. And that's a wonderful thing for me to remind. And, and then I go from that place. And when I leave commun the communion table, in my heart I go, you know, I have once again been reminded of what Jesus has done. And now I really want his spirit to lead and guide and direct my life so that my life more ably reflects what he ideally wants it to be. Well, we've just had Anzac Day, right? Yeah. And we have Anzac Day to remember those who gave their lives that we might have freedom and life. Mm. And it's much the same thing. Mm. Just before we go for a short break, I just want to add something also. You know, people in um, during the history, they fall into two traps. Either to uh, do it too often, something which will uh, take away the, the um, importance and the relevance of the thing, mm -hmm. or... Uh, not to do it, you know, and uh, falling into a routine. Uh, the Pharisees, they fall into one side, you know, and, and probably Christianity today, they fall into another trap. And that's what I'm trying to say, that when we think about that question, ask about why should we have communion? This is important, and I would like to just uh, leave it to you to consider, you know, how you can come to God in your own time and have a relationship with God which is meaningful to you. But right now we are going to take a short break. Please stay with us. Don't go anywhere because we are coming back to deal a little bit more with the Day of Atonement and a few more other things. We'll have a song and we'll be back in a minute. There's more that rises in the morning than the sun More that shines in the night than just the more than just this fire here that keeps me warm In a shelter that is larger than this room And there's a loyalty that's deeper than mere sentiment And a music higher than the songs that I can sing 
the giver of all good things. So if I stand, let me stand on the promise that you will pull me to our Bible study group time. Just if I could put a little promo in here. Um, if you'd like to join a group Bible study rather than just sitting and listening on the radio, then every Saturday morning at Adventist churches all over the country, you can join in with them and they have one, usually starting around about 9.30 on a Saturday morning, although it will be worthwhile to check out the times because some churches do have different times. Here in Adelaide, there are a number of churches where you could attend, but if I could just point out three of them. Down in the south of Adelaide, there's a, ch- a larger church called Morfitt Vale on Pimpala Road, and they start at 9.30 in the morning. In the city, in the CBD on Angus Street, there is Adelaide City Church, and they also start at 9.30 in the morning. And perhaps towards the north in Paravista, they start at 10, but their Bible discussion starts around about half past 11. And you'd be welcome to join and sort of put some faces to the discussion. Very glad to see you as you come along. The Bible study we're doing this week is entitled Christ in the Heavenly Sanctuary. Now, we've kind of covered a little bit, but Stephen, Hebrews 9.24 
gives perhaps a good description of what the heavenly sanctuary is. Yeah, it does actually. In Hebrews 9 verse 24, it says, For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. So? So I guess there's there's probably two attitudes, I suppose, to this particular passage. Um, One approach is to say that in heaven itself there is a greater physical sanctuary. Another approach to this passage is to say that heaven itself is the sanctuary because that is where God is. And um, people take one or other of those points of view. Yes, that's right. Okay, Ledger, you wanted to share something with us. Jesus um, is the forerunner, having entered as our representative into the heavenly sanctuary, even into the very presence of God for us. That is Jesus is standing before the Father, ministering the merits of his atonement, the eternal redemption that he obtained in our behalf. Yes, when we accepted Jesus, our sins were forgiven, and we stood before God, pardoned and cleansed. But the fact remains that even though we have become Christians, we at times still sin, despite all the wonderful promises of victory. In such cases, Jesus intercedes as our high priests in heaven. He represents the repenting sinner, not pleading our merits, but pleading his own on our Mm. behalf before the Father. Okay. Well, now, I've heard people say that when they pray, they... At certain times, they feel their prayers don't get past the ceiling. <laughs> and so they feel that their prayers are totally ineffective. But when repenting sinners ask for forgiveness, how effective is Jesus' ministry? Helen? I was just thinking about what you were saying. I often have people say the same, Len. You know, my prayers aren't going any further than the ceiling and what have you. And my comment then it, it, with that is that God's presence is in the room. Hmm. doesn't have to go to the ceiling. He's right. actually there. But let me just mention in a text that I read earlier in Hebrews seven twenty five, it says, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the what? Uttermost. To the uttermost. And, you know, I was in the gutter and he saved me to the utter. And it's just amazing. Look, listeners, it doesn't matter how far down you've gone. Jesus is there and he's able to lift you up. It says if we come to him. And that's that's what we need to do. We need to come to him. His promise is sure. He will save to the uttermost. So Helen's partly answered this question. Stephen, what's uttermost mean? It means completely and totally. I I, I was just thinking about this whole faith and feeling business. And our feelings can... um, be very misleading you know if i'm feeling positive and happy and full of and up you know full of joy then i feel more sure that the prayers that i pray are more effective yeah yeah if i'm feeling down in the dumps or in the gutter as helen said then mm-hmm. i'm more inclined not to feel that my prayers are getting anywhere but the reality of life is that faith has nothing to do with my feelings and yeah. so if i pray to god he has promised And when God promises, he never lets us down. God has promised that he will hear our prayer. And um, if it's in regards to sin, which so often it is, and he will remember our sin no more. Mm. And for me, that's a wonderful thing to know. Yeah, Ledger. 
I feel that when I pray, the presence of God and the Holy Spirit is in, in to me, inside of me, inside of my heart. So I have a little testimony to tell you. Now is the first time that, I, that I'm opening my mouth to say. Fr last Friday night, I was in a shower and I was singing a part of a, of a little song. Holy, holy, you are most God Almighty. Worthy is the Lamb, and so on. Worthy is the Lamb. And in the shower, when I was showering, I felt a presence into the into the cabin of the shower. So I was washing my hair, and I took the I I had my eyes closed, and I took the hair away. I wiped my eyes, and I looked next to me because I felt the presence. And uh, again, in my bedroom, when I, w I was wiping my hair, I was sitting on the, on the bed, and again, I, I had my head down and wiping my hair and with my my with a towel and again I felt a presence next to me and again I looked I took my hair away and I looked uh, again uh, you know aside me and I felt a presence there and I said oh my lord he your mm. presence is here with me I was struck in awesome I, I I couldn't believe it's it's amazing I um, yeah. had opportunity to talk to a lady one time who felt that God could not forgive her she felt that her sins were too great. And although I reminded her of the saving grace of God and that you can't out-sin God's grace, she couldn't accept that. But when it says to the uttermost, the worst sin can be forgiven because of the sacrifice that is made. Helen, and then perhaps Nick, you'd like to share something. I'd just like to add to what you were saying. I went through a period of time for a couple of years where I used to think that there was two words in the Bible and we're told not to add or take away. Mm -hmm. But in my mind, like 1 John 1, 9, where it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, those two words kept popping up. It said, except Helen. And every time I came to, you know, God so loved the world, whosoever believeth in him, except Helen kept coming in. And I felt I, I, I was just too unworthy that he could never. But then, you know, he showed me that there was, I know punctuation wasn't in the original words, but, you know, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, full stop. Yeah. Full stop. That's his promise. Yeah. And when you realize that, oh, well, I remember the night I realized that I did not sleep. I spent the evening with him, and it's just been the most beautiful time of my life. I've grown with him and through him, and I praise God for that. He saves to the uttermost. Absolutely. I just want to add uh, a little bit on what also Stephen says a bit earlier about uh, the business of faith, you know, to believe in God and to trust in him for what he promised us is true. And uh, we, we don't need to, you know, to be worried because feelings can be deceptive. They sure can. <laughs> just like the English language. <laughs> and and I, I, want to, I want to just mention uh, one thing. Jesus himself. He asked a question, and I believe was through his feelings. He said, Father, depart from me, this cup, if it's your will. But next thing he said, but in your hands I commit my life. Because Jesus believed in what God assured him before, that God will resurrect him, mm. God will bring him back. 
And that's very important to understand that we should know, not go only with the feelings. Oh yeah, feelings are very deceptive. And um, in different times in our lives, our, our lives go up and down, but you know, God is always the same. Yeah. He doesn't change. He is consistent in his attitude towards us. And if he makes a promise, then we can be fully reliant because he doesn't change. And I think we might have mentioned this in a previous program. If God was fickle and he's having a bad day, as the ladies would say, a bad hair day, he says, no, I'm not interested today. They can go and get stuffed or whatever. <laughs> but God is consistent. And when he promises to forgive our sins through Jesus Christ, we can rely on it. All right, we're going to move on. So why is this knowledge that Christ is our high priest so precious to Christians? Helen, would you like to respond to that? Well, I was thinking through this whole session earlier on, and when you think about it, Christ is our sacrifice, he is our mediator, and he is our judge. And I'm so glad he is. It's a bit like a court of law. Lynn, maybe you'd like to go on with that one, Lynn. Well, I actually had to stand up in a court of law once. It's not because I'd done anything wrong. It's because uh, that particular time I had a mining lease and I hadn't renewed it. And um, fortunately, the mines department had made a mistake, and so I had to go and stand up in a court of law. I didn't actually have a, um, a solicitor helping me or anything, a lawyer, but in the case of us... As we think about Jesus' work in heaven, in the heavenly sanctuary, he is our judge and he is our mediator or our lawyer. How do you lose a case where the judge is on your side and the lawyer is in your, on your side? And so it's a wonderful thing that Jesus has this dual role and he is in our favour. Then I was just thinking back um, many years ago, involved in an accident, a car accident, and the police said it could go one of two ways, depending if you had a good lawyer. At the time, my husband and I had very little money, and uh, so we thought we'd have to go to court. It was interesting that the day before court, their solicitor rang us, and he asked us for our story. He then believed us over his own client, and he just waived all his expenses. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's like Christ, isn't it? Christ, we come to him, the Father believes him, and he waves, if you like, yeah. our sins. He covers us, you know, and accept Christ into our life. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, the work of Christ is so much more meaningful when we understand what happened in the earthly tabernacle and temple, the services there. All those things were symbolic in pointing to what is actually happening well, what happened when Jesus gave his life for us and what is happening now as he mediates for us. Let's move on. Lydia, would you like to read Hebrews 9, verses 19 through to 22? When Moses proclaimed every commandment of the calves, together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people, he said, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So it means the, the blood of Jesus 
has it's, done the cleansing. He has done the cleansing, yes. Yes. The detergent is blood. <laughs> Seems well, a bit of an interesting one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what you've just read says that the blood of Christ, or the blood of animals firstly in the Old Covenant and the blood of Christ in the New Covenant, does the cleansing. Yes. Now, in the temple services in the Old Testament times, again, it was blood that did the cleansing. But interestingly, once every year, there was a special ceremony that took place. It was called the Day of Atonement. What actually happened on that day? Well, this was, a, like you say, it was a once-in-a-year service when the high priest would go into the most holy place. Remember I was talking before about the fact that there was a courtyard and then there was like a little building and the building was divided into and there was a holy place and a most holy place? Well, every day of the year the priest would go into the holy place, but once a year the high priest would go into the most holy place and he would go in with um, blood from a special offering and he would sprinkle it in the most holy place to deal ultimately with the problem of sin. Okay. And, and, and that was important because it was necessarily some sort of preparation before even the high priest was doing that because you can't just deal with that thing very casually. No. Uh, you need to be, and that's when we, the object lesson actually, when what Jesus is doing for us in heaven right now took very seriously, you know. He, he had his own time on this earth to teach, but not only to teach because unfortunately sometimes there are people today, there are religions which are following just teachings of somebody. If you think of for example, Buddha, or, you know, just to mention some names, uh, but there was necessarily a sacrifice. Mm. The high priest had to enter the most holy place. He only did it once per year mm. in order to cleanse the temple of the accumulated sins. And then there was this interesting service where the sins of the temple were symbolically placed on the head of a goat, usually a goat, called a scapegoat. And then a young man was to take that goat with the symbolic sins on it, take it out into the desert somewhere and let it go. And this service was known as the cleansing of the temple. Hebrews 9.23, Helen, what does that say? 9.23, it says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. Without shedding of blood is no remission. It, sorry, that was 22. 23 says, It was therefore necessary that the pattern, pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So if you think of it in a symbolic sense, when we pray and ask for our sins to be forgiven, God forgives us, no question, he's able to save to the uttermost. There has to be a time if the earthly sanctuary had to be cleansed that the heavenly sanctuary needs to be cleansed. Now, I didn't um, say anything about this before we started, panel. When will that happen? Yes? Well, I, I'd like to come up with a thought, not only just when, but why is it necessary that mm. the heavenly sanctuary needs to be cleansed? Is not the heavenly sanctuary, isn't that where God abides? Is that not perfect? 
you know, these are thoughts that some people voice to me when I'm in the community. Mm. And one person said that I, want, that I was reading, one commentator said, well, when you think about the war in heaven, it started in heaven, didn't it? The war. So that's where it started from, from Lucifer. Yeah. And to be done away with completely, Christ actually died for us on that cross and he has removed those sins if you like from the world the world universal mm -hmm. and that's why the heavenly this is what i read the heavenly sanctuary needed to be cleansed from that sin that it would never come again it would be cleansed to the uttermost forevermore there would be no more okay i thought that was an interesting concept if we look uh, back in the earthly sanctuary uh, how that is described the uh, everything what happened, Stephen, just give you a little bit of uh, background there. When once a year the high priest went in the most holy place, whatever happened before that, that was the sin which was accumulated was dealt altogether. That was that. for the 12 months. Yes, and yeah. that's what that, that, what that means. Mm. To put you right with God, which means there was a judgment happened there. Because the judgment was that, okay, you are now made righteous. Now Jesus went with his own blood in heaven to mediators which pointed out during this Bible study before God. But also there is a time of judgment there which starts to happen and if you, this is another study in itself, if you go in the book of Daniel and read all the prophecies which is revealed to Daniel there, we may find out that Jesus, you know in, histo in Christian history, there was a man believing that Jesus Christ will come at a certain date. And you may remember William Mueller. Yep. But actually, there was something else which happened around that time. If, if I will be even more precisely, like back in 1844, that God started also not just uh, mediating with his blood, but also the judgment which is the judgment, it's called the pre-advent judgment. I mean, the judgment before his second return. And as I said, we haven't got time now to go in details in regard to that uh, aspect. Well, Nick, you mentioned 1844. I would like to suggest this because I understand the audience who are listening to this, you listeners, some of this becomes very deep theology. But I'd just like to say this, the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary happens before Jesus comes back to earth. And when he comes back to earth, there will be no more sin. There will be no more sinners. We will all be saved sinners. Uh, Ledger, you'd like to share with us, I think, something here? Scholars have been surprised by the statement that the heavenly sanctuary itself needed to be cleansed or purified. However, once this is understood as a Day of Atonement reference, the problem vanishes. In Hebrew 9.23 shows that the work Christ does in the heavenly sanctuary is the true expression of what the earthly high priest did in the early Day of Atonement service in the Israelite sanctuary. The ministry of the, of the earthly priest in cleansing the earthly sanctuary foreshadowed the work that Christ would do one day in the heavenly. The text does not say that this heavenly cleansing takes place immediately after Christ's ascension. From the study of the book of Daniel, 
we can see that this phase of ministry began in the year 1844. So, as Christians facing the last days, we need to understand the solemnity of the time that we are in, but rest in the assurance of what Christ has done for us in the past and is going for us now in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. Okay, thank you very much. Now, panel, we've just about at the end of the time. If anybody has a short statement you would like to give in conclusion, and then I'll wind it up afterwards. Yes? No? All right. Well, I'm going to just try and wind this all up. At the cross, Jesus became the once-for-all sacrifice for sins of the world. Now he's in heaven with God the Father, administering forgiveness on an individual basis. His work for fallen human, human beings continues, but before much longer, he'll put aside his role as mediator, as high priest, and come to collect those who've accepted him, and he will celebrate the victory with all those who are saved. Mm. And that's a day I look forward to, when we who are corruptible, subject to sin and decay, will become incorruptible, and we who are mortal will be given immortality, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 55. What a day that will be, mm. a day that I, and I'm pretty sure all of you here, look forward to. Thank you. Thank you very much, panel, for uh, this Bible study. As we mentioned at the beginning, this was not going to be very easy, but uh, we did our best. But most of all, thank you, our listeners, for being with us. And uh, until next time, uh, may God bless you. And don't forget, Jesus, our Lord and God, is not in holiday. He's in the business of salvation of each one of us. May God bless you.